AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Check. Uh, Check. Uh. We waiting on reparations. You're listening to Waiting on Reparations, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, if you told me that tomorrow I'd be trapped in a camp, I ain't even gonna front with you, I'd be crapping my pants. This isn't unprecedented, doesn't happen by chance. All it takes a couple fascist plans, it'll happen again. It's like it's happening now with the fascists in power. Love to see us locked in cages, fucking shackled for hours. So if you fast asleep on what happened to the Japanese, you'd be laughing least yeah, when you're the yeah, target and then yeah, the past repeats. Yo, look at the shit that they left us with in this lifetime. When our parents was fucking, they wasn't in their right mind. They selling our future and profit off of a pipeline. They try lies and we hiding behind rhymes. A product of pop, homie, I was born in the cold. Bitch hey. black, shed a tear, you would have swore it was snow. Been this way since I was four minutes old But was raised to hold it in until the point it start to torture his soul Yo, y'all taking advantage of it, y'all look kinda quiet Long black hoodie like I'm trying to start a riot Let's take it to the city hall and stop till they retire Take all this corporate greed and just put that on a diet With fingers in the air, fuck the silent majority is waiting on reparation, this is model minority, motherfucker Hey, hey My name's Dope Knife I'm Lingua Franca we are waiting on reparations. Hurry up. Is that the cat jumping up and down? Yeah, let him be. Let him live his life. He's joyful and just having a good time. So good. Ain't you, Egg? Hey, shout out to Factor Chandelier for the beats for today's episode. So how did your weekend end up being? Didn't you, uh, didn't you have another protest? Weren't you hitting the streets? Obviously. Gotta be. Yeah, I hosted another car caravan Saturday night. Shut down the streets around City Hall. Bumped our radios, listened to some Kendrick, as well as some speakers from the State House. Um, Spencer Fry, as well as the ACLU of Georgia's um, political director, Chris Bruce, called in to talk about defunding the police, as well as like state-level reforms that have been proposed. Um, it's really funny, actually, because I got a call from the city manager today that was like, we've heard you've been having these protests in the streets, and like you didn't get a permit. 
you need to get a permit because people are complaining. And I was like, I'll pass it on to the organizers because it's not like I'm the end all be all of yeah, these things yeah. that are happening. I'm just like one of many moving parts in this work. So uh, do they give you a hard time? They give me a little bit of hard time. Like what's a hard time? Like I mean, do they just they like, were like do they the just police, pester you? Or do they, they like, actually they stop were, you from doing stuff? They were sometimes? like, so the police showed up and we had like our own security people like on the ground, kind of monitoring the police presence at the protests. And they, at one point, were, like, directing traffic away from, like, the blockage we had created. And eventually, when this, like, beautiful young trans woman was, like, chanting, no justice, no peace, fuck these racist-ass police, they started retreating. But I guess they got complaints from surrounding, like, business owners or something. Like, when we try to vend in the streets, we got to get a permit. So why is it that, like, these protesters are out here, like, shutting down traffic, and y'all aren't, like, locking them up? And it's like, these are our streets. Whose streets are streets, man? But, I mean, they didn't get to it though like at the end of it would you say it was at the end su- of the, the, no, successful the, the, yeah it was successful we disbanded around 10 um got people to like call and write their legislators while they were sitting in their cars listening to music we had like catering from this like dope jamaican lady in town it was like it was a beautiful thing it was a beautiful thing yeah no i would have i would have gone with you for sure because i told you last week that i was gonna go yeah, i was with gonna you, bring your ass i wasn't feeling good and all the COVID stuff going on. I didn't know if that was me showing symptoms or not. So I was like, yeah, let me keep my hand, my ass home. And, so what did you end up doing this weekend? I was just trying my hardest not to like fall too deep into the Tulsa rally and stuff like that. I <laughs> I decided to just uh, chill and try to like clear my mind. But I ended up scrolling the net and Twitter and getting dragged into the rabbit hole that was the J. Cole versus No Name little mm-hmm. little disagreement. Did you did you hear about that? Oh, yeah. I heard did a you little bit about that. that? What'd yeah. You, what'd you end up thinking about that? So, I mean, I listened to J. Cole's song. I listened to uh, No Name's response. I mean, Mad Lib killed the beat. I think everyone can agree upon that. Well, okay. Let me, let me recap the situation as far as I know. Right? So, as far as I know, the, um, the protest started after George Floyd's death and No Name, who is a rapper from Chicago, um, I guess she, she put out a series of tweets where she, uh, one of the tweets, she was critical of like um, the top selling rappers are silent right now and they should be doing something. Something to that effect. But what I noticed in like J. Cole's response to like the initial beef was that it really like centers his feelings like in a way that I think is like important to do is like some important stuff to work through on a personal level but like not necessarily helpful to broadcast but I don't know I feel kind of conflicted about it like damn like write your fucking little poetry and keep it to yourself and like work through your problems on your own and then use this opportunity to like link to bail funds or GoFundMes or petitions or actions happening in the area but instead he just made it all about his feelings about getting called out and like I felt to a certain degree that that was some weak shit But at the same time, I think it speaks to a real struggle that, like, a lot of folks right now are waking up to the evils of capitalism, of corporatism, of our fucked up duopoly, learning more about freedom movements that have come before us. And, you know, just like taking to the streets for maybe some of their first ever protests. And just because you're black doesn't mean you woke necessarily. Like, as we talk about an upcoming episode, there's a lot of folks who want to like progressivize hip hop just because some of us choose to convey our experience to poverty and survival and brutality of our current systems. But the fact, the fact is that a lot of people in hip hop aren't overtly political and they got to wake up as much as white people who have been standing on the sidelines need to as well. And I think J. Cole does a good job of modeling what that growth and that vulnerability 
looks like, which is helpful for people who might feel similarly at inadequate during these times and are trying to figure out what to do. But, you know, and so that's helpful, even if it falls short of modeling what taking action looks like, which I think is the important part that was missing of this dialogue and like the little peace sign J. Cole wanted to throw up and end the conversation with, like it could have gone a lot farther than that. And like, as No Name says in her response, you're really about to write about me when the world is in smokes. Like it's distracting from the conversation around abolishing the police, around like the women that are going missing, around the trans black, black trans women that are getting murdered. So I feel like she hits on some really important points and also, you know, is hammering home the fact that like you could be using your platform for anything right now. I don't know, you know, this this whole thing has is, is been very weird to me. At first I was really into it and now it just seems kind of off-putting. Two rappers that are dope, yeah. pretty intelligent people, having a disagreement, talking about it in rhymes. The this way is, I look yeah. at it, as this a former battle rapper... has been one of the most, rapper, beautiful, most beautiful beefs in hip-hop of all time. For real, as, as, a battle, as a former battle rapper, to me, that's like biggest breaths of fresh air to battles that I've heard in a long time. I mean, everybody was engaged. It had people talking about the issues. I just... All around, I thought the shit could have been really dope. I mean, I'm personally not really into telling people when they can and can't or should or shouldn't make the music they want to make. I'll say whether I like the shit or not, but I mean, go ahead and do your thing. I, I don't think it's distracting. I think it's adding to the conversation. But even regardless, I don't think that anybody who's out there who's really doing the work is going to be distracted by the new J. Cole drop. Yeah. I, yeah, totally. I feel like people who are really in the struggle are not going to get sidetracked by this, but folks who might be, like, new to this work... No, I hear you, I hear you. And we talk about this in another episode, but maybe, you know, people should be more picky about the rappers that they follow and look up to. It was, like, a productive... I don't even know if you can call it a beef. I, mean, I, think, it's it's productive. Seemed... I think it's productive because, like, no names still, like, name drop women that are have been murdered. Exactly. The importance of centering black trans women... You know, like the discussions around abolishing the police and like anti-capitalism and so like this whole beef has brought is, a lot it, of attention to it is very those. hard for me to look at these things like outside of like the rapper perspective so like I think she won and in winning she kind of like proved a point that's like oh yeah there are more important things yeah you know what I'm saying so it's just I don't know she she apologized for it. not necessarily apologized she but did. she just I mean yeah she, she, just, she just she she was like it's a, it was a waste of my time or I shouldn't have done yeah, it yeah she like, like got caught up in ego and whatnot but I don't know it's like it's it's stuff like that to me is like I'm I'm one of those true believers when it comes to the <laughs> the power of hip-hop and shit like that so I I believe that you can change the world through rap if if you if you fuck with it right so you know, it's kind of a bummer that, like, the whole thing ends in a splutter of, like, yeah, this rap stuff is meaningless. I was hoping that they would have just kept it going and kept the conversation growing and expanding, but it's like, everybody's too cool for school to rap. I just, I just, I'm one of those people that thinks that I got more insight out of hearing them rap about this shit than I would have gotten from an interview of them doing it, so... I always encourage people to rap. <laughs> but the verdict is that No Name won. Her beat was doper. Her rhymes are doper. And her song was doper. And I feel like I need to be a better man after listening to it and catch up on my W.E.B. Du Bois. Well, um, let's uh, let's go into what we were going to be talking about so, today. So, yeah, the topic of this day is um, model minorities. Model minorities. So what made you think about 
having that be the topic slash name of what we're talking about today? Um, so in 2018, I put out an album called Model Minority, aware of its like racist history within the Asian community, but also reflecting on my own experience with like, you know, growing up in a predominantly white community where I was like kind of nerdy and like in band and shit like that. And like having a lot of people tell me that I wasn't like other black people like, oh, well, you talk right and like you're not like the rest of them i know I literally this had this one friend who's like confided to me in secret that her parents called black people canadians in public look at those canadians over there across the room at applebee's like they're so loud i bet they don't even tip and like thinking that they could get away with saying that kind of shit to me and so like being positioned in my own life as a, as a, as a different kind of model minority among black people of like if only everybody could be like you and so it kind of, in an attempt to like push back at that and like laugh at that positioning through my, my music. And so I adopted that moniker for the uh, title of my LP. Well, you know, I didn't grow up in the States like that. So it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I like heard of the term model minority and what it was used for generally. Now, according to Wikipedia, model minority is a minority demographic, whether based on ethnicity, race, or religion, whose members are perceived to achieve higher degree of socioeconomic success than the population average, thus serving as a reference to groups and outgroups. This success is typically measured relatively by educational attainment, representation in managerial and professional occupations, and household income along with other socioeconomic indicators such as low criminality, high family and marital stability. The concept was controversial as it was historically used to suggest that the government didn't need to intervene in socioeconomic disparities between racial groups. So that's what Wikipedia says. And, you know, of course, I think it's always important to listen to just check out what Wikipedia says because the average person, you know, when they don't know some shit, they're going to check in Wikipedia. So we've established a baseline of what everybody knows about it. But generally, it's something that's like used as like a wedge issue between minority groups to, to get them to distrust each other or to criticize each other and to overlook the greater fight that needs to be fought. Holding one group up as like a model for what the other group should try to imitate. It generally just to sow tension within the, within the minority groups. And it, usually when I hear, heard about this concept, it was in relation to, to African Americans and Asian Americans. So these tensions have also been exploited to dismantle legal protections for people of color. In 2014, in a lawsuit against affirmative action, Asian American plaintiffs argued that Harvard admissions discriminated against Asian American students. The case, which was filed with assistance from right-wing activist Edward Bloom, the man Sarah Hinger, staff attorney of ACLU's racial justice program, describes as on a mission to kill affirmative action. During the LA riots, following the acquittal of police officers who beat Rodney King on camera, many Korean-owned businesses were damaged, partially because a 15-year-old black girl, Latasha Harlins, as we referenced in our first episode, uh, was killed by a Korean liquor store owner um, who only got community service, funeral restitution, and a $500 fine for shooting Latasha Harlins in the back of the head while trying to escape her store during an alleged robbery. You know, I, that story didn't really get covered as no, much as No, 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 no. Yeah, and, like, that's what I was kind of bringing up with the whole no-name thing of, yeah. like, in the Black Lives Matter movement, like, the killings of black men are far more um, fuel for the fires of indignation 
than are the murders of black women. Like, but what about Ayanna Jones, who, you know, was younger than uh, Trayvon Martin when she was killed by police? Um, folks like Latasha Harlins, like, don't get credit for starting the L.A. riots, but we remember Rodney King. Breonna Taylor is no longer trending, even though her murderers haven't been arrested. Oh, they only fired the mur- one of them, didn't they? Yeah, they fired one of them. That's it. Unlike the killers of um, Rayshard Brooks or the killers of George Floyd. Speaking of George Floyd, you know, at this point, everybody's seen the tape, so it's kind of hard to not notice Officer Thao, or Tao performing crowd control. Uh, he's the Asian-American police officer that was on the tape. Things like this, I don't think they've started or ratcheted up tensions between the two communities anymore or anything like that. It's definitely not what it was during the L.A. riot times. And Asian-Americans are definitely out there in the streets right now protesting with Black Lives Matter, you know, all over the country fighting for justice. But I did come across an article with the uh, Sahan Journal, which is a uh, news outlet that's dedicated to the immigrant and refugee community in Minnesota, um, that even though... Uh, Asian American Minnesotans are in fact fighting for justice out there alongside us. There are some who are feeling like they're targeted within that community. Uh, people who have the last same last name as the officer have been getting social media threats and stuff like that. So the solidarity could always be stronger. This isn't the first time an Asian American officer has been involved in one of these killings of unarmed black men in 2014. NYPD officer Peter Liang, a rookie, fired his gun. The bullet ricocheted off a wall and killed a Kai Gurley while he and his partner were patrolling a public housing development. There's no reason for the tension to exist between these marginalized communities, but there is some precedent set for, like, some tensions within the communities themselves. At the end of the day, both communities have been put through shit from this country, so there's no reason that the unity shouldn't be 100%. So today we're here with my friend Kaoru Ishibashi, also known as Kishibashi, also known as K, a world-renowned violinist and composer, or like he wants to be called a Athens musician guy. <laughs> K, how are you today? Great. I'm, I'm an Athens musician guy, just like you. Just like us. Just like us. Yeah. You know, on world tour, like, you know, well, doing any of this fancy shit. Just an Athens musician guy. I think there's a bit more to it than that. Um, I got your Wikipedia page up right now. It says um, it says you're an American singer, multi-instrumentalist, and songwriter. He's a founding member of Jupiter One. And for a few years, he was a member of the Band of Montreal. He embarked on his career as a solo artist in 2011, released his debut album, 151A, at Joyful Noise Recording in 2012 uh, to immediate fanfare and critical acclaim. Immediate fanfare? That's like your blurb. That's your blurb. How how do you feel about that? Um, Immediate. I don't know if it was immediate. The shit says immediate. So it's Wikipedia. It's the internet. It's the truth. I mean, immediate NPR fanfare. That was for sure. You love meeting a modest, famous person. It's always really nice. Well, of Montreal is what brought me to Athens, you know. It's, okay. So that's like that's how that's why I'm here. It's, it, there was, Word, yeah. Also, where, I was. Where are you, where you from? I lived in. Um, well, good question. Okay, so I was born in Seattle, but I grew up on the East Coast, and then I lived in. But before before Athens, I lived in New York City for like ten years. What'd your parents do? My parents are professors, so I'm a very middle class Asian American upbringing. Ah. Play play the violin. Get it? 
<laughs> word, word. Well, we're really excited to have you on today to discuss some of the overlaps between the struggles that um, Asian Americans have faced, you know, our, our um, struggles to also unite as folks of color, particularly around this moment where Black Lives Matter is taking the forefront of the national conversation. Um, and I wanted to start out by asking, like, kind of a personal question from my own maybe fuck up that I made a couple years ago. So in 2018, I dropped an album entitled Model Minority. And I want to explain why. And I want to explain why. So when I was younger, I grew up around a lot of white people. And I was told in subtle and not so subtle ways how great it was that I wasn't like other black people. I was smart. I talked right. All this kind of stuff. And so as I've gotten older, I've used hip hop to kind of reclaim my black identity. But I titled my album Model Minority as a, as a nod to the privileges that I do have as a light-skinned, middle-class, highly educated black woman. But in your opinion, was it fucked up that I named my album that? Okay, so... Um uh, yeah, the model minority myth. So what does that mean? And was it wrong of me to do that? Well, um, I think sociologists call, they developed this model minority myth. We know it as a myth now because it was this basically racist institution of encouraging like Asian people to be like, this is how minorities should assimilate to society. And so Asians kind of took that to heart like in the 50s, especially after Japanese incarceration. Meaning like they had, they were like, they were told by white people to be like, you know, this is how you can become American and assimilate into society. But what really happened was they were kind of used as a wedge to further put down black people. You know, mm-hmm. basically showing yeah. black people like, hey, look at the minor, look at this model minority. Look at it. This is the model, you know, and furthermore, you know, disenfranchising people. So it's uh, just a misuse of the word term, <laughs> I guess. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like, I think there are parallels to the way that certain like people in the black community are held up as examples of like, look, why can't you be a good black person like this one? Yeah. And like, I definitely want to ward off any of that. People who want to point to me as like a shining example because like I speak mainstream American English <laughs> because I have a master's degree uh, because I, you know, like because you play the game, middle class, all these things like nah, motherfucker, like don't try to put down folks that are lower income or, you know, speak like AAVE or, you know, aren't as educated as me because those voices are as important and sort of like lashing out at that way that I'm sometimes positioned yeah, so by white so, people. I don't think anyone's going to take that away from your use of the title. I mean, it's I, I think in the context that you were using it, it, it works. Yeah, no, no, well, no I mean, the feeling's the same because it's like basically the model minority, you're saying like, you know, uh, why don't you be more like us, but meaning more like white. So congrats. Right, you know, exactly, totally. That's that's what it is without saying it like that, you know. So the yeah. feeling is the same, but it, it's it, it it is used to basically push down any other culture that's not all American, and we know now that all American just means white, you know. So exactly. <laughs> When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. 
you're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience. And stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, do we want to talk a little bit about your documentary? Sure. So tell us about, um, am I saying it right, Omoyari? Yeah, so Omoyari is, um, I kind of started working on it about three, four years ago, basically after Trump got elected. And they basically, it was around the Muslim ban started happening. And and basically people in the administration were using the Japanese-American incarceration. Um, And for those who are are not familiar with it, it's basically during World War II, when America was at war with Japan, they basically incarcerated, removed the entire West Coast community of Japanese people, like 120,000 people, and put them into internment camps, like concentration camps in like the desert and in the interior. And so they're using that as a precedent for locking up. Like, even if you're an American citizen, we have a right to you know, profile you to lock you up, you know, using the incarceration, the internment as a, as a precedent. And it, it got me really upset because I was like, holy shit, this thing's, it's happening again. We haven't learned our lesson. In fact, we've taken this lesson and turned it upside down, you know, as a precedent, uh, or some people have. And, and so anyway, so I went, I started going to these Japanese incarceration sites and, and I, and I started writing music and I wrote a song. And then before, before I knew it, I just had this like, album and I have um, this feature length documentary of just me going around kind of really trying to figure out what it means to be like an American now, like an immigrant American or the, or a child of immigrants or what it's like to look different than, you know, the all-American standard that we we kind of grew up with. And so hey, when, when I was um, when I was in high school we, we went on, a, I, I used to live in a Senegal, and we went on a trip to Cape Verde and got to see like the old um, like slave quarters and like the, the places where they used to like sell and trade slaves at. It's kind of hard to put into words like how it makes you feel, but you definitely feel something 
eerie when you're like walking around places like that. Is there anything similar when you're walking around like old internment camp spaces or anything like that? Um, no, it's, I think at first, like I went on a research trip, you know, and then it was really difficult because we went, some, some of them were really pleasant. And so you're sitting there with all this like, this like really difficult, you know, history of injustice and you're just having a really pleasant time. And it's, and it, it was basically, I think, Sometimes it was deeply powerful because you felt like, you know, you had a story or someone to connect with, but a lot of times they're just places. So it really depends on um, your state of mind. And, and it also takes different times to process, like, events, you know, personally. So, yeah. Um, and Cape Verde, yeah, I've heard Cape Verde is very beautiful. Um, uh, you know what's crazy about Cape Verde? This has nothing to do with this podcast, but apparently tuna fisher. I, I had this friend, and he told me that Japanese tuna fishermen would come out all the way out there from Japan, and that's what fish their tuna. Yeah, and they said they like oh, left shit. some impregnated some women in the island, and there's like some half Japanese, like a bunch of like half Japanese people there. That's wild. Yeah, it'll 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 happen. Go to the, go there. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, no, we're gonna have to include that for sure. Anyway, that's a wild story about yeah. Cape Verde. So let's talk a little bit more about internment. Like, what was, was there a legal precedent set beforehand that, like, was used when Franklin Roosevelt uh, issued his executive order to um, um, execute the internment? Like, what were there, what were the grounds? Was there any grounds for that previously established in the country? No, not really, because it's basically, I mean, well, after Pearl Harbor, it became martial law. And so the military really took control of Hawaii. And Hawaii basically had so many Japanese Americans that they couldn't really, you know, lock everybody up. And so what happened was, um, you know, there's generally a lot of anti-Asian sentiment to begin with. So what happened was a lot of lobby groups started lobbying people in Congress and created this, and the media as well, you know, created this hysteria that ultimately led to people just wanting the removal of this entire population. And a lot of agricultural groups were behind it too like lobbying for the wealth of the Japanese because they were such great farmers. Um, like one statistic that kind of surprised me was that about 50% of, over 50% of California's produce was was basically done by Japanese farmers. Hmm. Mm. And so they, this was like a, a land grab for white farmers who were kind of jealous, you know, and this, and this happens all the time, you know, huh. throughout history. Like Nazi Germany did this to the Jews because they're just jealous, you know, and, and they just use this kind of hysteria um, to basically put the enemy, which is the, you know, the army, Imperial Army of Japan, and these basically Japanese immigrants who really had nothing to do but want a better life for themselves in America. And so, um, yeah, there's no legal precedent. They locked them up. And a lot of people were like, these, you know, these people are American citizens. How could, how could they do this? And there was, a, there was a Supreme Court thing, but ultimately it was just a time of war and the Supreme Court backed, you know. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. reading about how the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the removal in 19, 1944, which is nuts that that's still a precedent that holds to this day. Yeah, well, recently, you know what's really crazy is that recently, do you remember that Muslim, the reversal of the Muslim, oh wait, so the upheld, upholding the um, the Muslim ban? Yeah. They also threw in a note that Korematsu was unconstitutional. So recently it, it was overturned in that. The, oh, it was overturned recently. Well, that's kind of good news. Thank God. It's good news, but it was kind of like a slap in the face because it accompanied the upheld, you know, the upholding of Yeah. The Wild. Yeah. Hey, do you know if um, any any even remotely comparable sort of actions were taken against like Italian Americans or German Americans? Yeah. So at the time, you know, they they rounded up a lot of Italian nationals and German nationals. You know, the ones that are oh. close to the embassy and close to the government. But then also, 
There's just like so many white people that they just decided that this was gonna be a white country and Asians, Japanese were definitely easier to pick out. And so yeah. it was a really racist move. And FDR ultimately, you know, he's like this, nobody, people don't really know much about FDR, but um, one thing for sure is that like, he's this hero cause he helped America out of, um, you know, the great depression and yeah. the social programs that we still depend on today. But he was like this villain because for the Japanese, because he just couldn't help he couldn't um, help them. He couldn't protect them. These are just civilians, you know, just immigrants. And so he couldn't help the, them uh, from racism that ultimately led to their incarceration. So, en masse. Yeah. I found it interesting that the United States Census Bureau actually assisted in the internment efforts by providing uh, specific individual census data on Japanese Americans. And they d d denied this role for decades subsequently contrary to um, scholarly evidence and only in 2007 did that understanding of how they partook in internment become more widely known. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think they did whatever they could to round them up, you know, because I guess they, you know, they, they, they claimed it to be wartime. Um, so I think they just used that, that like, the fury of, of a wartime America to just kind of impose on people's civil rights, which we we know has happened time and time again, you know? Like, it's a war! It kind of makes me nervous for the current moment we're in because if things get ratcheted up. I mean, they're already putting all that stuff into the frameworks now by trying to declare Antifa a terrorist organization. Just using inflammatory language like that is, is how you lead to people greenlighting shit. It's all a matter of precedent. It's like what's been, you know, what's been set set before. It's like if it if it happened once, all it really takes is somebody with the political will to do it. You know. I mean, I mean like, I was kind of I was starting to get afraid. You know, when Twitter started removing Trump's things, and then all of a sudden, you know, he could just use the NSA or whatever to to remove whatever he wants from the internet. You know, so it's like. At some point, he could cross the line and become a dictator, a totalitarian, autocratic, an autocratic dictator. You know, but hopefully, there's enough people in the government that would not allow him to do that. You know, fingers I crossed. Mean, <laughs> whether, I mean, I think there's enough people in the government that he that he wouldn't be able to do it from a government level. But I mean, there's a lot of crazy people out in the street. You know, if you were just to even be like conservative with it and be, oh, only 5% of Trump supporters would be willing to like go to the extreme, you know what I mean, to get their way. That 5% yeah. is like millions of people. That 5% is like way more than Al Qaeda. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, especially given in Georgia, you know, we have the citizen's arrest law that was cited in uh, the case of Ahmad Arbery. These former police officers were going to make a citizen's arrest of someone they suspected to be a burglar. Like, they could just start, like, citizens, just random Trump supporters could go around and start rounding up uh, folks like us on the grounds that we are Antifa. <laughs> I know. Or something it's like, like that. I mean, that was what, yeah. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was, I, I was thinking about that because it's like, you know, because currently, like in Seattle, you know, like they have Chaz, right? And it's like this anarchist, right. it's like anarchistic state. And then yeah. you think about anarchy and you're like, sure, it's great for like liberal progressive people, but like think about the other way around. Like that's how lynch, that's how lynching happens when, you know, it's like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when you have mob rule. No, totally. So it's like, uh, yeah. So <laughs> it's a really complicated thing because it's, because isn't that with, because with your, um, you know, defund the police and all that 
kind of thing, you're trying to figure out an alternative way to police, right? So, right. you know, some of the things that, talking about like community policing, I mean, is that kind of dangerous? It's like, it sounds good at first, but then it could also turn the other way around for like, like uh, the like the community that Ahmad Aubrey was jogging in, right? <laughs> like they could yeah. only police that community. That's true. Exactly. Trayvon Martin's community. Well, I mean, know, I guess it would have to be stuff. like representative community policing. I guess. Well, I mean, I mean, isn't that like like where, wherever Trayvon Martin was? You know, like that's he was he would he was walking around in their representative community, and that guy was a rep. Was the guy Zimmerman? He was a representative of their community, right? Yeah, so, true. I don't know. It sounds a little. Sounds a little dangerous <laughs> to me, but no, I feel you. That's a very valid concern. I mean, very valid it... concern. Something no. else I wanted to ask you about that I thought was an interesting parallel between the way that race is legally inscribed in the states and been used to either provide legal protections or validate discrimination. Um, during internment, Colonel Carl, Carl Benditson. Oh, Benditson. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the architect behind the program. Sure. Um, went so far as to say that anyone with one drop of Japanese blood qualified for internment, which, you know, the one drop rule has been used for black Americans um, for discrimination previously. And it also has parallels with the blood quantum laws with Native Americans, the legal requirement that one have at least one fourth indigenous blood to qualify for certain government programs and things like that, even though that's imposed upon these tribes by the federal government and not necessarily they, something that they they um, personally validate within their own communities. Yeah, I think like what kind of surprised me, like when I when I was doing a lot of research, is basically you know you think about you think about racism and racism is, is like pretty um, the idea of of combating racism is pretty new, you know, in that like. Back then in the 30s, 40s, like almost everybody was racist, you know, kind of protecting their own communities, their own ethnic groups. And mm-hmm. even like eugenics was was a science back then, you know. That people actually and, believed in. And, and, yeah. And so blood quantum, these things are like, these things are valid, real things that people, that a lot of Americans really thought is, is just the way it is, you know. And so like when we were, I think in the 60s, 70s, when we were just like, this is fucked up. Where we, where we started to have like our in, baby boomers had this like individualistic freedom that we started to really realize that we should change, you know, from the inside, you know, and like, and, and make, create a better society. But like, it was a struggle in the 30s and 40s to convince somebody that, you know, that this America is for everybody because it, it wasn't. And, it, and a lot of people didn't believe that. So. Yeah. So let's uh, talk a bit about reparations. Okay. So how was, relevant? How timely? <laughs> yeah, it was recommended sure. that the government pay reparations to the internees in 1988. President Ronald Reagan signed into law the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which apologized for internment on the behalf of the U.S. government and authorized payment of twenty thousand dollars, equivalent to forty-three thousand dollars in 2019, to each former internee who was still alive when the act was passed. The U.S. government eventually dispersed more than 1.6 billion, the equivalent of 3.4 billion yeah. in 2019, in reparations to 82,219 Japanese Americans who had been interned for who had been interned and their heirs. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's um, yeah they got their yeah they call it redress you know the redress movement. Um, it's really interesting because um, when I was making my movie, 
you know, I couldn't make that the end of my movie because it wasn't really a happy ending for America necessarily. It was a happy ending for the Japanese American story, you know, and then they got, they also got a grant that it, they have to include it in some textbooks and there's, a, there's an annual grant that goes along with that. But I think、um, the reason why I couldn't make it the ending is that it's like, that's one community that, that did get redress and, and there's an entire other communities that didn't, like the African American community or the Native American community. And it's like, Why is that? And I can only see it as a preferential treatment, you know, for one ethnic group over the other, you know, right? I, I don't see any other reason why they would get money and a whole, nother, whole other groups who have, who have、yeah. been, like, you know, who have been excluded. I mean, I guess I've heard arguments for like, how would reparations work for like African Americans? And we're going to obviously do a whole episode of reparations to come soon. But、um, the, I mean, this runs counter to that somewhat in that. There's some historical precedent for how reparations work, but in this specific instance, they were able to identify all of the former internees、yeah. who were still alive when the act was passed and give them a certain amount of money. Whereas, you know, we have African descendants of slaves that are, you know, separated out from recent African immigrants. Yeah, we have people who, you know, like my, my, my brother's daughter,、um, she looks, Afri- she looks、uh, Caucasian, even though she has a. Uh, you know, black father, and like, does she get reparations too? Like, what I guess the questions get, of like, what is the line with black people? It's like the uh, it's like the offense was for so long, you know what I mean? And it was just like, for like 300 years, yeah, it was yeah. such yeah. a clusterfuck that it's like you don't know where anybody's from or who anybody's people are to like, you know, it, you have to more so do it from like a A community level, you know what I'm saying, as opposed to like we're gonna identify each person who was. Yeah, because I mean,、uh, this is speaking from an Asian person who's basically like a white person, is like kind of like, because、um, you know, you put like a thousand dollars in your pocket or two thousand or ten thousand or whatever, you know, whatever dollar amount, is that really gonna empower the community to become equal members of society? Like,、yeah. no, no, right? Just cash won't do that, I don't, I don't think. Um, no, no, no. It'll help. It'll be a good gesture, but you know.、Um, so, I don't know. I mean, concerning the Japanese incarceration, the redress thing, it was,、uh, they set a precedent in that, like, you had to be alive when the injustice happened, which is kind of,、mm-hmm. you know, dangerous in that it set a precedent for basically excluding every, you know, Native Americans and African Americans. So,、um, yeah, it's,、uh, I think it's. I don't know. I don't know how to think about it except it's just something that happened. Because the Japanese Americans, you know, they, 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 they became affluent and they had political connections. They had some congressmen too, you know, at、yeah. the time. So、um, Normanetta really pushed that. So they had connections, you know, they, they assimilated.、Well. Yeah.、Um, but African American redress, I don't, I don't even, or. Uh, re- I'm sorry, what is it? What do you call it again? Re- reparations? Reparations, yeah. Yeah, African American. Reparations, rep- redress, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah I don't know how. So,、uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Pay out. I like, I like the scholarship idea. I think, did you mention that? Like college scholarships?、Um, I feel like that's something. But, or is yeah, like- yeah. I'm look- looking forward to breaking down the various things, ways that. Reparations could play out for African Americans、yeah. in an episode sometime soon since we are waiting on reparations. <laughs> um, uh, but you, you mentioned that, like,、um, you didn't want to end the film with redress. So, talk to us some about the aftermath of internment. How did this impact the Japanese American community in the years and decades that followed? Yeah, so a lot of it, you know,、um, 
you know, there's a group now that I work with called Sudu for Solidarity, and they work to end detention, uh, immigrant detention, because the idea is that the precept is that, you know, basically they're locking up people of color, like brown people uh, from Latin America, you know, and it's, um, it's racist. The, the origins are racist, and it's also just, um, it's ramped up heavily. And so um, we're showing solidarity with that group. And then I basically, uh, there's, a, there's a huge amount of anti- not, I don't know about a huge amount, but there's always been like anti-black sentiment within the Asian American community, and we're really yeah. trying to trying to like focus on that and, and as a major issue, especially now. You know, where do you think that comes from? Uh, I think it's that model minority that we bought into in the '50s. I think they're like, look, you can be a part of our club, and then and then uh, and then once we're in that club, you know, there's like a famous saying where it's like, you could be, you know, do you want to be at the? Do you want to be at the? at the dinner table or do you want to be on the menu you know so it's kind of like once yeah, you're at the no. table you know once you're at the table what are you going to do for your everybody who's not at the table are you just going to you know leave them out and I think a lot of Asian people have, have you know taken that privilege and just uh, kind of kept it to themselves and I think that's that's where we're trying to show solidarity with uh, you know the Black Lives Matter movement because it's it's yet again another ethnic group being suppressed and oppressed you know so um, that's more. Have you had ending. conversations yeah. with um, folks in within the Asian American community about Black Lives Matter recently? Oh yeah, tons. It's basically, um, I mean, there's a lot of solidarity. Well, the people I talk to, <laughs> but um, I've, I've had a lot of the older Asian people are just kind of like the older white people that you may not talk to on a regular basis. You know what I mean? They're yeah. just they're they're feeling like, what's the problem? You know, like why don't you just pull your pull yourself up by your bootstraps? It's probably the same thing, same yeah. thing in that community. You know. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know what, you know, it's just like a, an ongoing discussion. It's the same same discussion we have to have that white people are having with their grandparents right now. (laughs) Have you had any difficult conversations? Yeah, I've been talking to, um, I've been doing, uh, like, like I've been calling people actually, people who didn't, uh, I did a post on my social media where it's like, Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And I called a few people, you know, who didn't understand Black Lives Matter or like, one kid didn't know systemic oppression was real and then I called like a Chicago cop you know police officer and that really kind of hardened my opinion on like what the what the role of cops are in that like you know they're there to to stop crime you know that's their job but not necessarily to figure out why there's crime in the first place or to to help communities like it's that's just not in their job description you know so yeah so what were some of the things that the Chicago cop was talking to you about when you called him up yeah i mean she uh, was a woman she was a woman sorry yeah she was like it was interesting she was like i used to be a musician i went to i got an art i went to arts college and then you know but then i just like applied for a job cuz i didn't have one and it was fun at first cuz it was like you know busting like gangs and stuff like that and then it got, and then she's like, oh, I hate my job. I don't really, I don't really like my job now because everybody hates us. You know, it's kind of dangerous. I can't, you know, I, I, I'm fearful in my own neighborhood. Um, and it's like, it, the whole, the whole idea is that like, if only they wouldn't commit crimes, then we wouldn't have to bust them. And that's like yeah. her, that's her attitude. And I feel like that's a lot of cops attitudes in that like, I, if we, if we're going to really reform police, they have to reform they, they need cops to like either understand the ideology of systemic, you know, racism and that'll affect, you know, their hiring and their, and their practice like out on the streets um, and start hiring people who understand that, 
because they I don't I don't think they do. It's just not in their Man, education or training or anything. You know. I had a I had like a argument once with a friend's like brother in law who was like a like like literally like a Puerto Rican cop, and he like looked me dead in the eye and was like, "Well, I mean." Black people in Puerto Ricans commit all the crimes, so we have to arrest. You know, like saying shit like that. <laughs> so it's definitely something that's like ingrained in them when they're getting trained or something. Oh yeah, and it's and that yeah, it's not their job to like figure out why they're so destitute that they have to join a gang and like the gang's like the only way out of their community. I mean, I was like, so we were filming in like you know West Chicago, like in Austin, talking to like gang intervention counselor. Um, and she was just like, there's like nothing for these kids out there, you know? There's just like no resources. They're shutting down schools. They're just hiring more cops. It's like this police state. And there's literally, they, kids just don't have anything to look up to, like nothing, you know? The only way out is like like gangs or crime or something like that, like quick cash. But no Yeah. Hey, okay, you know. so... It just underscores the importance of actually making investments in community to stop crime from happening in the first place because cops just respond to crime after it happens. Yeah. That's like their primary role. They very rarely stop a break-in or stop a sexual assault. But if we had actually invest in like education and housing and stuff like that and programs for these kids that are thinking about joining a gang, giving them something to be part of in their community that makes them feel validated and supported, we can actually cut this out at the root. What were you going to say, Mac? Um, I was going to go back to speaking of a uh, police state. So you obviously know, you know, we've got this issue with mass incarceration, you know, going on right now. So do you see any sort of like link or relationship between Japanese internment and mass incarceration that we see today? In that it's like incarceration. <laughs> yeah. I think like otherizing people and making people the enemy, I think, is just like something that's easily that, that makes you easily able to detain someone you know yeah. so like mexicans calling them rapists and murderers and illegal aliens you know two negative words you know right next to each other is basically humanizing oh yeah it's just it's it's a it's an optics war right so if you if you can dehumanize them then sure you can lock them up and so you know as we've seen with like the media it, you know black people cause crimes is that that's like in the movies and everything you got like i mean the 80s did have a lot of crime sure but it's like in but it was like movie. all they focused on are the nightly news the same way that i imagine the media was used to drum up hysteria around uh japanese americans during oh, yeah. the world war absolutely and it was it's basically like you it's differentiating between um like immigrants in america you know like the japanese immigrants in america who who kind of look like the japanese enemy you know over there but they're just like they have no connection in that, like, they're not military officers or, like, soldiers out in Asia, you know. So I think um, that's that's one argument I've heard. People are like, oh, they should, they're pro you know, they did horrible things in the Philippines, you know, to our soldiers in the Bataan Death March and stuff like that. You know, they mm -hmm. deserved it. And that's, or they could have, like, they could have, like, uh, you know, they might, like, uh, have enemy fields that when they invade, you know, they're going to help them when they invade. But there's like no evidence of that, you know. And so it was basically a lot of like lobby groups lobbying to the to politicians and to the media to kind of hype up this this thing. And you know what I, I also saw is that a lot of in wartime, a lot of like fringe writers, like like writers who would be on op-ed pieces and not like the best journalists, that's the ones who come to the front, you know, mm -hmm. and start spewing their kind of like racist ideologies and that's, that's what's what, happening now exactly yeah 
Hey, so so um, I mean, what role do you think uh like Pearl Harbor did in like shocking the system? Do you think that also kind of made it easier for them to to pull the trigger on it? Yeah, I mean, that was like the. I mean, Pearl Harbor was just I mean, like just like the fuse on the powder keg of the big bomb of what like this Japanese American struggle was. And so kind of in my movie, what I'm, I'm showing is that um, America is, Americans don't like to be called imperialist, but they were definitely imperialistic in that, you know, they grabbed oh, yeah. Hawaii yeah. and they grabbed Guam and they grabbed the Philippines and it's just, they, were, they had this westward expansion. And so Japan was, um, uh, Japan was like the only, you know, they gra- you know, Britain got China and Singapore and, you know, the Dutch got Malaysia and then basically European powers in America were doing this vicious like land grab of all of Asia and Japan was, Japan was really the only country that could stand up to this kind of imperialism and so they had to like quickly, you know, um, build forces and Hawaii was like half Japanese almost like with there was a lot of Japanese people living there at the time and so it was like this kind of in-between place. It was like barely America. You know, because American Marines like basically took it in the eighteen what nineties bayonet treaty. So it's um, I can't even remember the original question, <laughs> but uh, I th- I think uh, yeah, Pearl Harbor was like this the trigger. It was just like this it's ongoing power struggle between America and Japan at that time. I mean, like I remember like some Japanese American people being like um, when Pearl, uh, when nine eleven happened, people were like, this is just like Pearl Harbor. And then Japanese Americans were like, I hope it's not like Pearl Harbor because after that, that's when we started locking up, you know, yeah, people and like indiscriminately. And so, fuck, I think man. all these years later, I didn't even, I didn't even stop to consider how Japanese Americans must have felt during that time. That's crazy. Yeah, and I think we've we've matured. We're always maturing, you know, progressing. But there's always it's so easy to like forget these lessons, you know, like forget that forget what we've done. Because it's uncomfortable to talk yeah, about. Yeah, or never learn what yeah. like what we've done in the first place. <laughs> or, like, or, or be mistaken into thinking that what we did was like way longer ago than it actually was. Yeah. yeah. Or it's very easy if you're the oppressor to be like, oh come on, it's just like such a long time ago. You know, but <laughs> you know, it's like I guess you have to understand what generational trauma, you know, to and if you don't have it, it's really difficult to understand. Yeah. yeah. To for sure, yeah. With. We had a lot of conversations about generational trauma in our last episode. Oh, yeah. Or a couple episodes ago, maybe. Um, but um, you wanted to talk some about using um, art and songwriting to sort of sort of like relive or, re, or like reinvigorate our understandings of history. Um, yeah, so I think like as a musician, you know, all of us were kind of activated because we're generally liberal and progressive people, you know, artists. So, um, like after Trump became came into power, so I think I definitely started writing more about history because I felt it's so important. But it's difficult, you know, because history is like dusty and the language is a little different. They speak, you know, differently back then, and it's like the photographs are all black and white. And so, and making this movie and this album, I had to figure out what was um, like how to really connect the modern audience to the past. And so instead of like being angry and like negative with uh, about injustice, I kind of um, humanized the people in creating like, so a lot of my, I, I'm still writing like love songs and um, songs about like, you know, desire and, you know, loss and stuff like that. 
but just to humanize the people back then, just to show people now that they were people just like you and they had these these same things that you these same feelings that you had you know, that you have now to to empathize with them. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That was real dope talking to Kishi. We're going to have him back later so we can do a little rapping thing later, right? Yeah, yeah. But first, we want to talk a little bit about Asian contributions to hip-hop. Yeah, we felt like, you know, we want to, like, close it on a positive note. Build some solidarity. Yeah, and also there's a lot of, like, prominent rappers that have um, Asian heritage that doesn't get talked about because of the binarization of race. So, like... You're either black or you're white. Like, I'm Native American, but I was never, like, that was never really impressed upon me at a young age because, like, I'm black. Yeah, same it. thing. Like, my grandmother's Native American, too. Right, exactly. And so, like, there's, there's like... It uh, gets lost when you're talking these, like, struggles, you know? It's like... Right, you, like, yeah, yeah, people yeah. People frame it in white and black. And so we don't talk about the fact that Danny Brown was raised by a Filipina grandmother and grew up attending a Filipino-American church. Or that Nicki Minaj's father is half Indian. Or that Tiger's mother is Afro-Vietnamese and grew up in Vietnam. Um, and surprisingly to me, I didn't know Foxy Brown is of Chinese descent. 
the ways that race is constructed in America that are racist, these heritages. But then there's a lot of contributions of Asian American rappers themselves that uh, don't quite get the shine that they deserve. So who do we got first? So first we got G. Yamazawa with the track Violence. Yamazawa is a Durham-born son of Japanese immigrants, a national poetry slam champion, and a diplomat in the State Department. Oh, shit. Word. What's yeah, up? I know. What's what the up? fuck? State yeah. Department. I think it's really interesting. He opens the music video with a quote from Norwegian sociologist Dr. Johan Galtung. Direct violence is intended to insult the basic needs of others, including nature. Structural violence implements such insults into social world structures as implement... I drink a lot of wine. <laughs> I drink a bottle of wine. Sorry. A structural violence implements such insults into social and world structures as exploitation and repression. Cultural violence, such as religion and language, legitimizes direct and cultural violence. Damn, that's how he starts the video? That's how he starts is the video. Is, like is it like on a black on white or something like it's that? It's like the black screen oh, shit. in the white text. Let's, let's listen to some of that real quick. Sons of ceremonies never over because the blood, guns, and money is inherent in yeah, our no, culture. That's fresh, hey, yeah, yeah uh, he talks about where he learned to talk about violence, to describe his feelings in the context of rhyme from movies, TV, video games. It talks about the inherent violence in our culture, as well as art as a weapon. Like many rappers uh, talking about weaponry, you know, sawed off shotgun as a metaphor to describe his rhyme skills, while also referring to like the broader violence that exists in our culture as well. Well, I wanted to uh, bring up a rapper that I've known about for a long time. The, this cat, Dumbfounded. Uh, he's a known battle rapper, dope freestyler. He used to rap with Project Blowed back in the day. He's really dope cat, but this is his track, Safe. Let's check this out. Yeah, um, in an interview with the LA Times, he said that the uh, song came from when he was watching the Oscars a few years ago, and they were having that Oscars So White controversy. Mm-hmm. And he was like, he was watching it, but he wa- he still wasn't seeing any Asian people there. And yeah. then I guess like Chris Rock was doing the hosting and he was making a bunch of like Asian jokes and they were pretty stereo. You know, from the interview, Dumbfounder wasn't too like bothered by the, the Asian jokes, but just that they were like the same old stereotypical stuff and they were getting like huge roaring laughter. So he was like, man, fuck that. So he, he made this song where he's referencing how there's there's there needs to be more leading men in the Asia in, in, in Hollywood and that the Oscars, the only yellow man there was the goddamn statue and shit. Yeah. yeah. Let's uh, take a look at Year of the Ox's Thoughts and Prayers. Year of the Ox. Year, I'm sorry, Ox. I got to give a shout out to Year of the Ox. My homie is Lyrics. I know that dude. Yeah, they're dope yeah. As so hell. they're Korean American rappers from Fairfax and Virginia Beach. And in this song, I thought it was really interesting because they address the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally and the murder of Heather Heyer and the opening lines. But they also speak to the desensitization that comes with political engagement and outrage fatigue when they talk about it's hard to have an appetite when you notice the pain. Started off as black and white, but you notice the gray as you get older. Your arms get folded, your hearts get colder, your minds corroded. So claustrophobic. Like, just, and I feel, I've been feeling that a lot lately with the uprising. I'm just like, fuck, I'm fucking tired. And like trying to fight that and yeah. try not to like make that make let that make you into more of a conservative. Yeah, I mean, so I'm like it, really happy they touch upon that in this song. It, it like wears on you after a while. And shit. Yeah, yeah, and more broadly, they talk touch upon gun violence. They talk about the Mandalay Bay shooting in Las Vegas in I believe 2016, as well as anti-immigrant racism in the Trump administration. But then I thought, you know, I reflected a lot on the closing lines. 
So tell me what's the move here. Nobody's been through it. No one can tell us what to do here. And what's been on my mind a lot is that it's like a common feeling with how unprecedented things seem with the rise of fascism, the current pandemic and economic collapse, the uprising. But the truth is that we have seen things like this before. And it's so important to learn from the past, from the Great Depression and how it gave rise to ideas like the Green New Deal, from the Spanish flu of 1918, from the freedom fights that have come before us. And like remembering that our times are precedented and like learning from the folks that dealt with it before and embracing their tactics to answer that question that Year of the Ox leaves off at the end of the song. The next track, I like to pride myself in how much hip hop I listen to. But to be honest with you, I didn't even know that this girl rapped until I stumbled upon this song for this project. Um, this is Aquafina with the song Pockies. Pockies. Let's listen to this. So yeah, you see what I mean? It's like, it's not changing the world or anything like that. Obviously, it's one track. I don't want to judge it by her whole discography. But I get the sense that she's kind of like a comedy rapper a little bit. I mean, she's got some funny bars, which like are integral to any raps. Really, if you don't chuckle at the metaphors, then like, what are you doing with it? Yeah, but there is a difference because there are some, there are, there is some rap that's literally geared to be like stand-up or like a comedy show yeah. rap form you know it, it kind of reminds me of um it has the same vibe as like little dicky exactly Lonely exactly Island, that's exactly which, what again, i was thinking hey do your thing it's just not really my my personal shit i thought I'll it was ill do. though i mean but, like the music video is dope bangs, yeah. and like it bangs it yeah bangs, for sure i mean i i did hear that there's a little bit of controversy with her for black scent and cultural appropriation stuff like that but a that's a subject for another episode and b i don't really give a fuck what's the next one kid fresino oh kid fresino what do you think about that so he's a japanese rapper here rapping in a mixture of japanese and english which to me comes across as really impressionistic but maybe there's something i'm missing as a non-japanese speaker but like i mean but just regarding the flow and regarding the beat i really like the time signature switch-ups and, I really, and he's got this little shout out to No Name when he talks about, you know, no one is safe, which is pretty ill. So, like, I, you know, as a fan of, like, people like Aesop Rock, like, I enjoy the impressionistic nature of this song, as well as, like, the way he toys with, like, time signature and whatnot. So let's like, give it a listen really quick. Yeah, I mean, the thing that stood out to me is I was really digging the flow and, like, I love the way that he uh, transitioned between the Japanese and the English. That's the actually, code switching is brilliant. That's yeah. something that I'm starting to hear a lot of international rappers start to do now, which is like really making me wish I still knew how to speak French because it sounds. You spoke French? I used to, yeah. What? I, I used to. I used to speak French up until I was like six, and then that's when I started learning English. But I was still taking it throughout school, and then you know, graduate school and. Start drinking and smoking and stop Woo! speaking it with people. And the next yeah. thing you know, you haven't spoken it in 10 years. Yeah. And last but not least is a rapper on the rise. This is My Life by China Mac. Let's check this out. Been a snitch. Always been real. Always been legit. I was all alone. Had to fight for that phone. Y'all already know the vibes. I had to put on... Now, the thing that I initially noticed about him is... Is like the opposite of Aquafina, where he's a street rapper, except he's coming at it from a uniquely Asian perspective. I mean, if you if you listen to it, and I, you know, skim through some more of his stuff, and it's 
from a content standpoint, it's no different than stuff that you would hear in like a G Unit record or, you know what I mean, Casanova, Rick Ross, you know what I mean? But the thing is, he's doing it from his perspective. So he's rapping about his mother being an immigrant. He's got like lines like, I didn't have no silver spoons, I had chopsticks, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's just like some some good quality gutter street rap, you know what I'm saying? But with an Asian twist to it, I love it, I love it. So I think that's going to do it for this episode. You ready to rap? Yeah, let's rap. Let's get Kishi back up here. Okay, so what I do is I start with the violin. I looked at the metronome. I got your favorite tempo, 92 BPM. All your sassy tweets will mean a blasted thing When they send the army for your family And everybody on your street Just like they did in California 1943 If you're listening Take some notes about the history Battles and the victory The intersection's bittersweet Whether you from Compton or Kyoto Or the in-between We gotta beat the enemy Uh, They tap my phone so the streets can watch me I like to beat the pockies But now you rockin' with the Kishibashi He signed my autograph, I'll keep the copy Unlike some other popular podcasts We don't speak to Nazis We just keep it sloppy while the beat is knocking Think stop me I would eat a rapper like his beef and broccoli Dope knife, you heard the champ Don't stop till I put those cops in internment camps (laughs) I'm a fucking idiot Hey I'm Dope Knife I'm Lingua Franca And we are waiting on reparations Hurry up, we'll see you next week Waiting on Reparations is a production of iHeartRadio. Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. 
Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.